Hello, and welcome to Sleep Cove, the podcast to get a great night's sleep. This week, I'd like to say thank you to a few Patreons. I'd like to say thank you to Leela, Angela, Amy Beth, Janine, Francesca, Jed, and Renee. Thanks so much for joining Patreon. Also, I want to say a massive thank you to all the reviews and private messages I've been receiving. I read every one of them and it motivates me to make more podcast episodes. Thanks to Beans, who has left a review on Apple Podcasts saying, the only podcast that has worked, I really don't know what to say other than thank you. This works beautifully for me. I find your voice soothing and the volume is just right. I sleep now and that is huge. Well, thanks very much, Beans. And I also want to say thank you to Fabricio, who has said, you really helped me sleep. I had sleep issues, but when I play your podcast, everything's so calmed. Thank you. I'd also like to thank Connor, who contacted me on Instagram to say, Hi, Christopher. Me and my girlfriend have tried many podcasts to help us unwind at night, and Sleep Cove is the only one we have had success with. Thank you for your time you put into them, and good luck with the future of the podcast. Well, thanks, Connor. That's very nice to hear that as well. The podcast is currently doing a test on dynamic ads at the beginning of the episodes, and if you're having troubles with these, please visit my Facebook group or page and there'll be instructions about how to get rid of them by pre-loading podcast episodes that don't have these adverts. This episode is a double bedtime story consisting of The Apple by H.G. Wells followed by Alice in Wonderland, Chapter 7. I hope you enjoy. The Apple is sponsored by Pasta Evangelists. Do you like fresh pasta? Well, I certainly do. And I've been receiving recipes and ingredients from Pasta Evangelists. They are fresh pasta and sauces which are delivered straight to your door. I particularly like their ravioli and sausage dishes. In total, the dishes take around five minutes to prepare and you just have boiling water for the pasta and you heat up the sauce. Their menu features 10 dishes including a mix of meat and vegetarian dishes as well as a gluten-free option and it changes weekly on Monday. They feature common dishes such as carbonara and meat ragu and there's more unique and regional Italian dishes if you want to try something new. There are options to order single or double portions and all the pasta and sauces can be frozen for up to a month. Please use discount code SLEEP to get 10% off your first order. Please go to pastaevangelist.com to order. So, if you'd like to support the podcast and eat amazing food, please go to pastaevangelist.com and use the discount code SLEEP. Please do not listen to any sleep recording whilst driving or operating heavy machinery. Please listen in a place where you can safely go to sleep. And let's begin. The Apple by H.G. Wells I must get rid of it said the man in the corner of the carriage, abruptly breaking the silence. Mr. Hinchcliffe looked up, hearing imperfectly. He had been lost in the rapt contemplation of the college cap tied by a string to his portmanteau handles, the outward and visible sign of his newly gained teaching position. In the rapt appreciation of the college cap, and the pleasant anticipations it excited. For Mr. Hinchcliffe 
had just matriculated at London University and was going to be junior assistant at the Holmwood Grammar School. A very enviable position. He stared across the carriage at his fellow traveller. Why not give it away? said this person. Give it away? Why not? He was a tall, dark, sunburnt man with a pale face. His arms were folded tightly and his feet were on the seat in front of him. He was pulling at a lank black moustache. He stared hard at his toes. Why not, he said. Mr Hinchcliffe coughed. The stranger lifted his eyes. They were curious, dark grey eyes and stared blankly at Mr Hinchcliffe for the best part of a minute, perhaps. His expression grew to interest. Yes, he said slowly. Why not? And end it. I don't quite follow you, I'm afraid, said Mr Hinchcliffe with another cough. You don't quite follow me, said the stranger, quite mechanically. His singular eyes wandering from Mr Hinchcliffe to the bag with its ostentatiously displayed cap and back to Mr Hinchcliffe's downy face. You're so abrupt, you know, apologised Mr Hinchcliffe. Why shouldn't I? said the stranger, following his thoughts. You are a student, he said, addressing Mr Hinchcliffe. I am by correspondence of the London University, said Mr Hinchcliffe, with irrepressible pride, and feeling nervously at his tie. In pursuit of knowledge, said the stranger, and suddenly took his feet off the seat, put his fist on his knees, and stared at Mr Hinchcliffe as though he had never seen a student before. Yes, he said, and flung out an index finger. Then he rose, took a bag from the hat rack, and unlocked it. Quite silently, he drew out something round and wrapped in a quantity of silver paper, and unfolded this carefully. He held it out towards Mr Hinchcliffe, a small, very smooth, golden yellow fruit. Mr Hinchcliffe's eyes and mouth were open. He did not offer to take this object, if he was intended to take it. That, said the fantastic stranger, speaking very slowly, is the apple of the tree of knowledge. Look at it, small and bright, and wonderful knowledge, and I'm going to give it to you. Mr Hinchcliffe's mind worked painfully for a minute, and then the sufficient explanation, mad, flashed across his brain and illuminated the whole situation. One humoured madman, he put his head a little on one side. The apple of the tree of knowledge, eh? said Mr Hinchcliffe, regarding it with an assumed air of interest, and then looking at the interlocutor. But don't you want to eat it yourself? And besides, how did you come by it? It never fades. I've had it now for three months, and it is ever bright and smooth and ripe and desirable as you see it. He laid his hand on his knee and regarded the fruit musingly. Then he began to wrap it again in the papers, as though he had abandoned his intention of giving it away. But how did you come by it? said Mr Hinchcliffe, who had his argumentative side. And how do you know that it is the fruit of the tree? I bought this fruit, said the stranger three months ago, for a drink of water and a crust of bread. The man who gave it to me, because I kept the life in him, was an Armenian. Armenia, that wonderful country, the first of all countries where the Ark of the Flood remains 
to this day, buried in the glaciers of Mount Ararat. This man, I say, fleeing with others from the Kurds who had come upon them, went into desolate places among the mountains, places beyond the common knowledge of men, and fleeing from imminent pursuit, they came to a slope high above the mountain peaks, green with the grass, like knife blades, that cut and slashed most pitilessly at anyone who went into it. The Kurds were close behind, and there was nothing for it but to plunge in, and the worst of it was that the paths they made through it at the price of their blood served for the Kurds to follow. Every one of the fugitives was killed save this Armenian and another. He heard the screams and cries of his friends and the swish of the grass about those who were pursuing them. It was tall grass rising overhead and then a shouting and answers and when presently he paused everything was still. He pushed out again not understanding, cut and bleeding until he came out on a steep slope of rocks below a precipice and then he saw the grass was all on fire and the smoke of it rose like a veil between him and his enemies. The stranger paused. Yes, said Mr Hinchcliffe, yes. There he was, all torn and bloody from the knife blades of the grass, the rocks blazing under the afternoon sun, and the sky molten brass, and the smoke of the fire driving towards him. He dared not stay there, death he did not mind, but torture. Far away beyond the smoke he heard shouts and cries, women screaming, so he went clambering up a gorge in the rocks, and everywhere were bushes with dry branches that stuck out like thorns among the leaves, until he clambered over the brow of a ridge that hid him, and then he met his companion, a shepherd who had also escaped, and counting cold and famine and thirst as nothing against the Kurds, they went on into the heights, and among snow and ice, they wandered three whole days. The third day came the vision. I suppose hungry men often do see visions, but then there is this fruit. He lifted the wrapped globe in his hand, and I've heard it too from other mountaineers who have known something of the legend. It was the evening time, and when the stars were increasing, they came down a slope of polished rock into a huge dark valley, all set about with strange contorted trees, and in these trees hung little globes, like glowworm spheres, strange, round, yellow lights. Suddenly this valley was lit far away, many miles away, far down it, with a golden flame marching slowly athwart it, that made the stunted trees against it black as night, and turned the slopes all about them, and their figures to the likeness of fiery gold, and at the vision, they knowing the legends of the mountains, instantly knew that it was Eden they saw, or the sentinel of Eden, and they fell upon their faces like men struck dead. When they dared to look again, the valley was a dark for a space, and the light came again, returning a burning amber. At that the shepherd sprang to his feet, and with a shout began to run towards the light, but the other man was too fearful to follow him, 
stood stunned, amazed and terrified watching his companion recede towards the marching glare and hardly had the shepherd set out when there came a noise like thunder the beating of invisible wings hurrying up the valley and a great terrible fear and at that the man who gave me the fruit turned if he might still escape and hurrying headlong up the slope again with that tumult sweeping after him he stumbled against one of these stunted bushes and a ripe fruit came off it into his hand this fruit forthwith the wings and the thunder rolled all about him he fell and fainted and when he came to his senses he was back among the blackened ruins of his own village and I and the others were attending to the wounded a vision but the golden fruit of the tree was still clutched in his hand there were others there who knew the legend knew what the strange fruit might be he paused and this is it he said it was the most extraordinary story to be told in a third class carriage on a Sussex railway it was as if the real was a mere veil to the fantastic and here was the fantastic poking through is it was all Mr Hinchcliffe could say the legend said the stranger tells that those thickets of dwarf trees growing about the garden sprang from the apple that Adam carried in his hand which he and Eve were driven forth he felt something in his hand saw the half-eaten apple and flung it petulantly aside and there they grow in the desolate valley girdled round with the everlasting snows and there the fiery swords keep ward against the judgment day but I thought these things were Mr Hinchcliffe paused fables, parables, rather do you mean to tell me that there in Armenia the stranger answered the unfinished question with a fruit in his open hand but you don't know said Mr Hinchcliffe that this is the fruit of the tree of knowledge the man may have had a sort of mirage say suppose look at it said the stranger it was certainly a strange looking globe not really an apple Mr Hinchcliffe saw and a curious glowing golden colour almost as though light itself was wrought into its substance as he looked at it he began to see more vividly the desolate valley among the mountains and the guarding swords of fire the strange antiquities of the story he had just heard he rubbed a knuckle into his eye but said he it has kept like that smooth and full three months longer than it is now by some days no dying no withering no decay and you yourself said mr hinchcliffe really believe that is the forbidden fruit there is no mistaking the earnestness of the man's manner and his perfect sanity the fruit of knowledge he said suppose it was said mr hinchcliffe after a pause still staring at it but after all said mr hinchcliffe it's not my kind of knowledge not the sort of knowledge i mean adam and eve have eaten it already we inherit their sins not their knowledge said the stranger that would make it all clear and bright again 
we should see into everything, through everything, into the deepest meaning of everything. Why don't you eat it then, said Mr Hinchcliffe, with an inspiration. I took it, intending to eat it, said the stranger. Man has fallen, merely to eat it again, could scarcely. Knowledge is power, said Mr Hinchcliffe. But is it happiness? I am older than you, and more than twice as old. Time after time I have held this in my hand, and my heart has failed me at the thought of all that one might know, that terrible lucidity. Suppose suddenly all the world became pitilessly clear. That I think would be a great advantage, said Mr Hinchcliffe, on the whole. Suppose you saw into the hearts and minds of every one about you, into their most secret recesses, people you loved, whose love you valued. You'll soon find out the humbugs, said Mr Hinchcliffe, greatly struck by the idea, and worse to know yourself, bare at your most intimate illusions, to see yourself in your place, all that your lusts and weaknesses prevented your doing, no merciful perspective. That might be an excellent thing too, know thyself you know. You are young, said the stranger, if you don't care to eat it and it bothers you, why don't you throw it away? There again, perhaps you will not understand me. To me, how could one throw a thing like that, glowing, wonderful? Once one has it, one is bound. But on the other hand, to give it away, to give it away to someone who thirsted after knowledge, found no terror in the thought of that clear perception. Of course, said Mr Hinchcliffe, thoughtfully. It might be some sort of poisonous fruit. And then his eye caught something motionless, the end of a white board, black lettered, outside the carriage window. Mawood, he saw. He started convulsively. Gracious, said Mr Hinchcliffe. Homeward. And the practical present blotted out the mystic realisations they had been stealing upon him. In another moment, he had opened the carriage door, portmanteau in hand. The guard was already fluttering his green flag. Mr Hinchcliffe jumped out. Here, said a voice behind him, and he saw the dark eyes of the stranger shining and the golden fruit, bright and bare, held out of the open carriage door. He took it instinctively, and the train was already moving. No! shouted the stranger, and made a snatch at it as to take it back. Stand away, cried a country porter, thrusting forward to close the door. The stranger shouted something Mr Hinchcliffe did not catch. Head and arm thrust excitedly out of the window, and then the shadow of the bridge fell on him, and in a trice he was hidden. Mr Hinchcliffe stood astonished staring at the end of the last wagon, receding round the bend, and with the wonderful fruit in his hand, for the fraction of a minute his mind was confused, and then he became aware that two or three people on the platform were regarding him with interest. Was he not the new grammar school master making his debut? It occurred to him, so far as they could tell, the fruit might very well be the naive refreshment of an orange. He flushed at the thought and thrust the fruit into his side pocket, where it bulged undesirably. But there was no help for it, so he went towards them, awkwardly concealing his sense of awkwardness, to ask the way to the grammar school and the means of getting his portmanteau and the two tin boxes which lay up 
a platform thither. Of all the old and fantastic yarns to tell a fellow, his luggage could be taken on a truck for sixpence. He found and he could proceed it on foot. He fancied an ironical note in the voices. He was painfully aware of his contour. The curious earnestness of the man in the train and the glamour of the story he told had, for a time, diverted the current of Mr Hinchcliffe's thoughts. It drove like a mist before his immediate concerns. Fires that went to and fro, but the preoccupation of his new position and the impression he was to produce upon Homewood generally, and the school people in particular, returned upon him with revigorating power before he left the station and cleared his mental atmosphere. But it is extraordinary what an inconvenient thing the addition of a soft and rather brightly coloured fruit not three inches in diameter proved to a sensitive youth on his best appearance. In the pocket of his black jacket it bulged dreadfully and sport the lines altogether. He passed a little old lady in black and felt her eye drop upon the bulge at once. He was wearing one glove and carrying the other, sticking with his stick so that to bear the fruit openly was impossible. In one place where the road into the town seemed suitably secluded, he took out his encumbrance from his pocket and tried it in his hat. It was just too large, the hat wobbled ludicrously and just as he was taking it out a butcher's boy came driving round the corner. Confound it, said Mr Hinchcliffe, he would have eaten the thing and attained omniscience there and then but it would seem so silly to go into the town sucking a juicy fruit and it certainly felt juicy. If one of the boys might come by, it might do him a serious injury with his discipline, so to be seen, and the juice might make his face sticky and get upon his cuffs, or it might add an acid juice as a potent lemon and take all the colour out of his clothes. From round a bend to the lane came two pleasant sunlit girlish figures, they were walking slowly towards the town and chattering. At any moment they might look round and see a hot-faced young man behind them carrying a kind of fluorescent yellow tomato. They would be sure to laugh. Hang, said Mr Hinchcliffe, and with a swift jerk sent the encumbrance flying over the stone wall of an orchard that there abutted on the road. As it vanished, he felt a twinge of loss that lasted scarcely a moment. He adjusted the stick and glove in his hand and walked on, erect and self-conscious, to pass the girls. But in the darkness of night, Mr Hinchcliffe had a dream and saw the valley and the flaming swords and the contorted trees and knew that it really was the apple of the tree of knowledge that he had thrown regardlessly away and he awoke very unhappy. In the morning his regret had passed but afterwards it returned and troubled him. Never, however, was he happy or busily occupied. At last, one moonlight night about eleven, when all homeward was quiet, his regrets returned with redoubled force and therewith an impulse to adventure he slipped out of the house and over the playground wall and went through the silent town to Station Lane and climbed into the orchard where he had thrown the fruit. But nothing was to be found of it. There among the dewy grass and the faint intangible globes of Dandelion Down
finding the perfect present for your mum is tough, especially if you don't have the luxury of going to the shops just right now. Most people love their mothers and you know want to spend time with them, and with the events currently happening in the world, it feels even more relevant and appropriate to be showing our love and appreciation for them in these times. I know that more than anything parents cherish spending time with their family and that's why I've given my parents the most meaningful gift this year and that's a chance to connect with loved ones through Storyworth. Storyworth is a fun and meaningful way to engage with family especially with relatives you might not get to see as often. The online service helps your loved ones share stories through thought-provoking questions about their memories and personal thoughts. It's a gift of spending time together wherever you live. My parents have already started receiving questions from Storyworth, questions about their early life I may have not asked before or may not know all the details, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what they've got to say. Every week Storyworth emails your family member different story prompts, questions you've never thought to ask. Like, what have been some of your life's greatest surprises? And what's the riskiest thing you've ever done? Reading the weekly stories is fun and makes families feel close, even if you're not all together. My parents have been sharing some funny stories and I'm looking forward to showing them to my young son when he's a lot older as well. After one year, Storyworth will compile every answered question and photo you choose to include in a beautiful keepsake book that's shipped for free. I'm sure my family and your family will treasure these books. Give your mum the most meaningful gift this year with Storyworth. Get started right away without the need for shipping by going to storyworth.com slash sleep and you'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash sleep for $10 off. Alice in Wonderland Chapter 7 A Mad Tea Party There was a table set out under a tree in front of the house and the March Hare and the Hatter were having tea at it. A Dormouse was sitting between them, fast asleep, and the other two were using it as a cushion, resting their elbows on it and talking over its head. Very uncomfortable for the Dormouse, thought Alice, only it's asleep I suppose. It doesn't mind. The table was a large one, but the three were all crowded together at one corner of it. No room, no room, they cried out when they saw Alice coming. There's plenty of room, said Alice indignantly as she sat down in a large armchair at one end of the table. Have some wine, the March Hare said in an encouraging tone. Alice looked all around the table, but there was nothing on it but tea. I don't see any wine, she remarked. There isn't any, said the March Hare. Then it wasn't very civil of you to offer it, said Alice angrily. It wasn't very civil of you to sit down without being invited said the March Hare. I didn't know it was your table, said Alice. It's laid for a great many more than three. Your hair wants cutting, said the Hatter. He had been looking at Alice for some time with great curiosity, and this was his first speech. You should learn not to make personal remarks, Alice said with some severity. It's very rude. The Hatter opened his eyes very wide on hearing this. 
and all he said was this. Why is a raven like a writing desk? Come, we shall have some fun now, thought Alice. I'm glad they began asking riddles. I believe I can guess that, she added aloud. Do you mean that you think you can find out the answer to it? said the March Hare. Exactly so, said Alice. Then you should say what you mean, the March Hare went on. I do, Alice hastily replied. At least, at least, I mean what I say. That's the same thing, you know. Not the same thing a bit, said the Hatter. You might just as well say that I can see what I eat. Is the same as I eat what I see. You might just as well say, added the March Hare, that I like what I get is the same thing as I get what I like. You might just well as say, added the Dormouse, who seemed to be talking in his sleep, that I breathe when I sleep is the same thing as I sleep when I breathe. It is the same thing with you, said the Hatter, and here the conversation dropped, and the party sat silent for a minute, while Alice thought over all she could remember about ravens and writing desks, which wasn't much. The Hatter was the first to break the silence. What day of the month is it? he said, turning to Alice. He had taken his watch out of his pocket and was looking at it uneasily, shaking it every now and then and holding it to his ear. Alice considered a little and then said, The fourth. Two days wrong, sighed the Hatter. I told you butter wouldn't suit the works, he added, looking angrily at the March Hare. It was the best butter. The March Hare meekly replied. Yes, but some crumbs must have got in as well, the Hatter grumbled. You shouldn't have put it in with the bread knife. The March Hare took the watch and looked at it gloomily. Then he dipped it into his cup of tea and looked at it again. But he could think of nothing better to say than his first remark. It was the best butter, you know. Alice had been looking over his shoulder with some curiosity. What a funny watch, she remarked. It tells the day of the month and doesn't tell what o'clock it is. Why should it? muttered the Hatter. Does your watch tell you what year it is? Of course not. Alice replied very readily, but that's because it stays the same year for such a long time together. Which is just the case with mine, said the Hatter. Alice felt dreadfully puzzled. The Hatter's remark seemed to have no sort of meaning in it, and yet it was certainly English. I don't quite understand you, she said as partly as she could. The Dormouse is asleep again, said the Hatter, and he poured a little hot tea upon its nose. The Dormouse shook its head impatiently and said, without opening its eyes, Of course, of course, just what I was going to remark myself. Have you guessed the riddle yet? said the Hatter, turning to Alice again. No, I give it up. Alice replied, What's the answer? I hadn't the slightest idea, said the Hatter. Nor I, said the March Hare. Alice sighed wearily. I think you might do something better with the time, she said, than waste it in asking riddles that have no answers. If you knew time as well as I do, said the Hatter, you wouldn't talk about wasting it. It's him. I don't know what you mean, said Alice. Of course you don't, 
the hatter said, tossing his head contentiously. I dare say you even spoke to time. Perhaps not, Alice cautiously replied, but I know I have to beat time when I learn music. Ah, that accounts for it, said the hatter. He won't stand beating. Now, if you only kept on good terms with him, he'll do almost anything you'd like with the clock. For instance, suppose it were nine o'clock in the morning, just time to begin lessons. You'd only have to whisper a hint to time and round goes the clock in a twinkling. Half past one, time for dinner. I only wish it was, said the March Hare, said to itself in a whisper. That would be grand, certainly, said Alice thoughtfully. But then, I shouldn't be hungry for it, you know. Not at first, perhaps, said the Hatter, but you could keep it half past one as long as you liked. Is that the way you manage? Alice asked. The Hatter shook his head mournfully. Not I, he replied. We quarrelled last March, but just before he went mad, you know pointing with his teaspoon at the March Hare. It was at the great concert given by the Queen of Hearts. I had to sing, Twinkle, twinkle, little bat, how I wonder where you're at. You know the song, perhaps? I've heard something like it, said Alice. It goes on, you know, the Hatter continued, in this way. Up above the world you fly, like a tea tray in the sky, twinkle, twinkle. Here the dormouse shook itself and began singing in its sleep, twinkle, 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 and went on so long that they had to pinch it to make it stop. Well... I'd hardly finish the first verse, said the Hatter, when the Queen jumped up and bawled out, He's murdering the time, off with his head. How dreadfully savage, exclaimed Alice. And ever since that, the Hatter went on in a mournful tone, He won't do a thing, I ask. It's always six o'clock now. A bright idea came into Alice's head. Is that the reason so many tea things are put out here? she asked. Yes, that's it, said the Hatter with a sigh. It's always been tea time. And we've no time to wash the things between whiles. Then... Keep moving round, I suppose, said Alice. Exactly so, said the Hatter, as the things get used up. But what happens when you come to the beginning again? Alice ventured to ask. Suppose we change the subject, the March Hare interrupted yawning. I'm getting very tired of this. I vote the young lady tells us a story. I'm afraid I don't know one, said Alice, rather alarmed at the proposal. Then the Dormouse shall, they both cried, wake up Dormouse, and they pinched it on both sides at once. The Dormouse slowly opened his eyes. I wasn't asleep, he said in a hoarse, feeble voice. I heard every word you fellas were saying. Tell us a story, said the March Hare. Yes, please do, pleaded Alice. And be quick about it, added the Hatter, or you'll be asleep again before it's done. Once upon a time, there were three little sisters the Dormouse began in a great hurry, and the names 
were Elsie, Lacey and Tilly, and they lived at the bottom of a well. What did they live on? said Alice, who always took a great interest in questions of eating and drinking. They lived on treacle, said the Dormouse, after thinking for a minute or two. They couldn't have done that, you know, Alice gently remarked. They would have been ill. So they were, said the Dormouse, very ill. Alice tried to fancy to herself what such an extraordinary way of living would be nice, but it puzzled her too much, so she went on. But why did they live at the bottom of a well? Take some more tea, the March Hare said to Alice very earnestly. I've had nothing yet, Alice replied in an offended tone, so I can't take more. You mean you can't take less, said the Hatter. It's very easy to take more than nothing. Nobody asked your opinion, said Alice. Who's making personal remarks now? The Hatter asked triumphantly. Alice did not quite know what to say to this, so she helped herself to some tea and bread and butter and then turned to the Dormouse and repeated her question. Why did they live at the bottom of the well? The Dormouse again took a minute or two to think about it, and then said, It was a treacle well. There's no such thing. Alice was beginning very angrily, but the Hatter and the March Hare went shh, and the Dormouse sulkily remarked, if you can't be civil, you better finish the story for yourself. No, please go on, Alice said very humbly. I won't interrupt again. I dare say there may be one. One indeed, said the Dormouse, indignantly. However, he consented to go on. And so, these three little sisters... They were learning to draw, you know. What did they draw, said Alice, quite forgetting her promise. Treacle, said the Dormouse, without considering at all this time. I want a clean cup, interrupted the Hatter. Let's all move one place on. He moved as he spoke and the Dormouse followed him. The March Hare moved into the Dormouse's place, and Alice rather unwillingly took the place of the March Hare. The Hatter was the only one who got any advantage from the change, and Alice was a good deal worse off than before, as the March Hare had just upset the milking jug into his plate. Alice did not wish to offend the Dormouse again, so she began very cautiously. But I don't understand. Where do they draw the treacle from? You can draw water out of a water well, said the Hatter. So I should think you could draw treacle out of a treacle well. Eh, stupid? But they were in the well, Alice said to the Dormouse not choosing to notice this last remark. Of course they were, said the Dormouse. Well, in. This answer so confused poor Alice that she let the Dormouse go on for some time without interrupting it. They were learning to draw, the Dormouse went on, yawning and rubbing its eyes, for it was getting very sleepy and they drew all manner of things, everything that begins with an M. Why with an M? said Alice. Why not? said the March Hare. Alice was silent. The Dormouse had closed its eyes by this time, and was going off into a doze, 
but on being pinched by the hatter, it woke up again with a little shriek and went on. That begins with an M, such as mousetraps and the moon and memory and muchness. You know you say things are much of a muchness. Did you ever see such a thing as a drawing of a muchness? Really? Now you ask me, said Alice, very much confused. I don't think. Then you shouldn't talk, said the Hatter. This piece of rudeness was more than Alice could bear. She got up in great disgust and walked off. The Dormouse fell asleep instantly, and neither of the others took the least notice of her going, though she looked back once or twice, half hoping they would call after her. The last time she saw them, they were trying to put the Dormouse into the teapot. At any rate, I'll never go there again, said Alice as she picked her way through the wood. It's the stupidest tea party I ever was at in all my life. Just as she said this, she noticed that one of the trees had a door leading right into it. That's very curious, she thought. But everything's curious today. I think I may as well go in at once. And in she went. Once more she found herself in the long hall and close to the little glass table. Now I imagine better this time, she said to herself and began by taking the little golden key and unlocking the door that led into the garden. Then she set to work nibbling at the mushrooms. She had kept a piece of it in her pocket till she was about a foot high. Then she walked down the little passage and then she found herself at last in the beautiful garden among the bright flower beds and the cool fountains. <laughs>